0: jump right in the middle of things here, but so be it. I'm going to be re- reading uh, Hebrews, Book of Hebrews. By the way, when in the sermon, when I refer to the writer of Hebrews uh, rather than Paul or Luke, the reason is is because we don't know who wrote the Book of Hebrews. There are some educated guesses, but they're guesses nonetheless. So, from the Book of Hebrews, let's give your ears to the reading of God's Word. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women. We see back there dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Title this morning's message is Living by Faith let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who moved men of old to write these words of truth that we have just read, the very word of God, we ask that you would inhabit the preaching of your word. Meet each of us in our need and minister to us in grace and truth. In the name of Christ, our Lord, one with you and the Father, we pray. Amen. Well, I've discovered that um, runners, and probably there are some of you in this room, runners are an unusual breed. Uh, Rain or snow or sleet or dark of night will not keep them from their appointed runs. And they press on. And my brother-in-law is a good example. Uh, This year he ran the Boston Marathon, And uh, evidently, this year, it was particularly brutal because temperatures started out in the 30s. I guess it went to the the low 40s. And there was this uh, pouring rain and winds 30 miles an hour. And there he was out there, running. And I'll look at my window at home, and I'll see these runners. horrible, Horrible snow on the ground. People running by. Did you know that each of you, if you are a Christian, you're a runner. And that God says the Christian life is a race. So sometimes when we look at those runners and we think how weird they are, we want to remind ourselves, hey, we're runners too. And God calls us to be engaged in that race that he has set before us. Our race begins with a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And it ends at the finish line of the conclusion of our lives. The Apostle Paul, he wrote how many letters in the New Testament? What, 13, something like that? Second Timothy was his last letter. Listen to how he sums it up. He says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, And the time of my departure has come, and by that he meant his death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In our passage we just read, the writer of Hebrews describes uh, the Christian life as a race. He uses the language of race. And as we turn our calendars from 2018 to 2019, it would be well for us to remind ourselves that we are runners, that we are in a race, and that we are to live from that vantage point. In fact, God gives us three vantage points from our text to consider about this race. First is this, is that it is a race worth running, a race worth. Worth running. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to a people who are getting ready to throw in the towel. They were ready to give up. They, they were ready to turn back. And the reason is this, is because they were undergoing intense suffering because of persecution. They were being persecuted by their fellow Jews because they, they had turned to Christ and they found no home in the synagogue anymore. They were exiled from their own people. They were being persecuted by the Romans because Judaism was a protected sect under, under Roman law. But they, as, when they turned to Christ, they stepped outside of that protection. So they were being persecuted, and they were saying, do we want to do this? Why not just uh, get, go back? to Judaism, go back to the way it was and get rid of all this suffering and persecution. But the writer of Hebrews, he's writing this letter to encourage them not to do that. And he says in the last verse of chapter 10, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith And preserve their souls. There are two things going on there. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. So he's saying that if we turn away from Christ, if we go back, then we face destruction. A destruction far worse than the Romans could inflict upon us. But if we stay, if we pursue the course, he says, We will preserve our souls. So what he's saying is this. He's saying, these things I'm writing to you, this is a matter of life and death. Eternal life. Eternal death. But He also says, says something else. He says that not turning back, in other words, persevering, is an evidence of saving faith. It's an evidence of the presence of faith. And then what he does is he goes on in the next verse, which is the first verse of chapter 11, and he defines faith. He says, faith is the substance of things, the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. In other words, faith is not saying, I really believe Faith is saying, I believe in a reality. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is believing in something that is real, but that is not perceived through the eyes of the body. It is perceived through the spiritual eyes given by the Holy Spirit. And so faith has a foundation. You know, sometimes we think faith versus fact. That's bogus. Faith is fact, faith is based on fact, and that's the substance that we take our stand on as Christians to find footing, to find level ground. But faith also gives us a focus. And the focus of our faith, the writer of Hebrews will tell us, we just read it, is Jesus Christ. So what the writer of Hebrews does, after he defines faith as, uh, as uh, the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, what he does is then he, he, we get into the rest of chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11. Now, this time of year, we have all the, the year in review kind of stuff, year in review, and we've got all these events and people and all this kind of stuff. That's kind of what Hebrews 11 is although it's not a review of the year, it's a review of the years. It's a panoramic view of men and women of faith throughout history that are held up for us as examples. And what do we see? We see, as we look at these men and women of faith, we see faith and what it looks like in practice and how unreasonable it is how when faced with suffering and persecution it wasn't deterred it pressed on now we just read in our uh, page 3 the text the, the end of this section of the hall of fame of faith but look how it ended verse 39 and all these in other words all these people who walked by faith persevered in faith Though commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So they're not apart from us. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that there are these Old Testament saints, these Old Testament people of faith. And there are you to whom I am writing, the writer of Hebrews says, the New Testament, the people of faith on this side of the cross, and we are one people because there is one faith, there is one Lord, there is one promise, there is one God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, in as he explains things, he explains how this works, how there is one people of God. He also said, you notice that. They, uh, since God had provided something better for us. That's what it says in verse 40. Something better for us. What he's saying there is that God has provided something better for us on this side of the cross. Now this concept of better, it's a big one in the book of Hebrews. In fact, you can outline the book of Hebrews in terms of better. Christ, better than the angels. Christ, better than Moses Christ better than Joshua Christ the priesthood of Christ better than the priesthood of Aaron uh, last week Sam Andreades I thought it was interesting when he he wasn't able to pronounce his name he said it incorrectly but he said this he's preaching from Hebrews um sorry from Philippians 2 and that's where it says to consider others better than yourselves and he, he made this, he got this serious look, and he, he, had, he put on his Greek scholar cap, if you remember, figuratively. And he said, this is what better means. Better means better. And that's pretty profound. But in the book of Hebrews, better doesn't mean better. At least in the sense that we typically think of better. You know, we think of better that chocolate is better than vanilla, or uh, Macs are better than PCs, or the Eagles are better than the Redskins, something like that. But that's not the way it works in the book of Hebrews. Better doesn't mean better. Better means actual. Better means fulfillment. uh, uh, So in this sense, Jesus is better than all those ones that I mentioned, like a building is better than its shadow. Jesus is better in the sense that a building is better than its shadow. Now, if, you, if it's pouring outside, it's so nice to see some blue sky today, some sun, wait till tomorrow. But if you're, if you're trying to get out of the rain and you run to a shadow, how helpful is that going to be? You're still going to get wet. It's not going to do a thing for you. Where do you want to find protection from the rain? Not in the building's shadow. You want to find protection in the building. You want to move into the building. And that's the point of the writer of Hebrews. He says that uh, all these things that were in the Old Covenant... All, all, this thing related, all this stuff related to the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and all these things, they were shadows. They were not the reality, but they said that there is a reality, a reality that is seen by faith, a reality bound up in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And so that's the emphasis. The writer Hebrews said, don't go back to Judaism. You're going back to the shadow. Come to the fulfillment to the Messiah of God. Now, what does that have to do with a race? What does that have to do with our running? What's this? This race of faith that spans history that we see in the Old Testament, that we see in the New Testament, this race that looks to Jesus Christ as the reality, and the eventuality, this race is worth running. Because there is no other way given by God. There is no other reality. There is no other hope. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given by which one can be saved than Jesus Christ. The Old Testament faith was the faith in God's Messiah. Who is that? That's Jesus, right? The New Testament faith is the same faith in God's Messiah. Who's that? It's Jesus. So it's a a race worth running. Secondly, God talks to us in this text about a race to be run, a, a race worth running. Secondly, a race to be run. Now, what does it even mean to run a race? Well, we know what it means to run a race because that's a pretty common thing, right? We know a race. But what does it mean if you're a Christian that your life is a race and you are a runner on that course? What does that mean? How, how is this image to impact us? Well, when my brother-in-law ran uh, the Boston Marathon, he followed the course that was set out for runners. Um, it wasn't like one of those, comer- those cartoons where the person you know, goes to the end of the race, shortcut, and sits in an easy chair until he sees the runners coming. There's a co- charted course. And what he did was he pressed forward toward the goal. In some cases, my brother-in-law wasn't officially running. He was kind of walking. It was almost like putting one step in front of the other because he was so cold and his body's temperature, I don't know what was happening to him. I, I, people would die in those things. There's a course, and he pressed forward on that course to the goal. That's what our running the Christian life looks like. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says this You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In the Christian, in God's vocabulary, running basically means living the Christian life with purpose, focus, and determination. Sometimes God will use the, the expression walk. You know, we talk about that, don't we? Our Christian walk, you know, walk the talk kind of thing. And in fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, you who bear the name of Christ. Here the writer of Hebrews and elsewhere we find we are to run the race that is set before us. Look at uh, verse 12, verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? I think it means this. I think it's saying that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus as our example. In other words, we know uh, another way that it's expressed in terms of obedience. Now, when you look at the New Testament epistles, you see all call, kind, kind of calls to do things. And we see that in the writer of Hebrews as well. For example, chapter 13, it says he speaks of love. That's what it looks like good works, hospitality, no love of money, visiting people in prison. The writer of Hebrews talks about us as needing to mature. And what he does, he kind of takes us to task. When he says, here you've been in church all this time, and how much have you grown? You're, You're still drinking milk. Shouldn't you be ready for meat? Shouldn't you be ready to take someone under your arm and help them to grow? And What he's talking here is about Maturity. Maturity in Christ likeness, so that our lives, our faith filled lives show up in faith fueled living. Uh, I think one word that is helpful to us to get what's in mind here is from Hebrews twelve fourteen, where the writer says this strive for holiness, strive for holiness. Without which, no one will see the Lord. Now, what is this holiness about? Well, let me uh, uh, let me borrow from Peter here in First Peter one. He says this: As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, "You shall be holy." for I am holy. You see what this is talking about? It's talking about a life dedicated to Jesus Christ. It's a talk, talk about, what did Jesus say? How, how does a disciple follow him? By de- if you will come after me, you must do what? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And that's the movement of the Christian life. Growth in Christ-likeness. Growth in holiness. Where we die more and more into sin. Live more and more unto righteousness. And suffering is not going to deter us. In fact, I think this is one of the greatest encouragements. Now, the, writer of the, the book of Hebrews is written to people who were suffering. Persecuted. But look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary. Actually, I like the translation that goes, or lose heart. Keep your eyes on Christ, that you might persevere in obedience, that you might not grow weary and lose heart. That, uh, Hebrews 12, 14 said, strive for holiness. Now strive, remember we're in a race. So what that says is that the Christian life is not a stroll. It's something where you strive. So there is a focus and grit and determination. Uh, in fact, we're, we're told to get rid of any impediments, tossing aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles and there's two categories that says to us this what in your life is holding you back from your christian life from christian living from serving jesus christ from growing in christ likeness what impediments are, are there that are not necessarily sinful but maybe they hold you back like a ball and chain or maybe there are those sins in your life where you take your eyes off of Christ and you veer to the left or you veer to the right or your heart is given to someone or something other than Jesus Christ. So to run, that's what we're talking about now. To run is to move toward Jesus in obedience, becoming like him. Let me pause here for a second to make this obvious point. Obedience is not a very popular topic. You know, we're, for us in the Christian life, we, we tend to think we're, we're all about grace, and what that does, it's freeing, right? It's freeing, liberating. But what does grace do? Look at our call to worship. I'm sorry, our call to confession. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people giving us license, is that what it says? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You notice it goes on to say that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people that are his own possession, zealous for good works. Obedience. Isn't that what Jesus tells us? He says, if you love me, you will do what? Be a law unto yourself? If you love me, you will do what I say. And so we run this race with our eyes fixed on Jesus as our exemplar, as our model of what God wants us to strive for. All right, so God shows us, okay, so there are three things here, official sermon, a race worth running, a race to be run, and lastly, a race already won. A race already won. You know, there's more to the story than looking to Jesus as an example. Look at, again at our Bible passage in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says we're to run this race, Verse 2, we're to look to Jesus, founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is seated. We're supposed to look at Jesus, not only as our example, but one who is seated. The one who was crucified, he endured the cross, and now is seated. What in the world does that have to do with a race? What does it have to do with our running? What are we supposed to be looking at? Evidently, it's something that's pretty important, because the writer of Hebrews actually began his letter talking about Jesus sitting down. Let me read from the opening verses of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Notice how Jesus is described here. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here it is. After making purification, that's priestly talk, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One of the things the writer of Hebrews does as he ties together this Old Testament promise and New Testament fulfillment as he leads us from shadow to reality, he describes some of the Old Testament furniture. He says, "Here's the tabernacle, and in the tabernacle you've got the courtyard." He talks about with the altar of burnt offering and the bronze basin for washing. And then you've got the holy place, and there are the furniture in there are the table for showbread and the golden lampstand, you know, with the seven uh, seven prongs and the altar of incense. But then he says, you come to the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there was only one piece of furniture. In the Holy of Holies, that one piece of furniture was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat where God was symbolized God's dwelling among his people, not in judgment, but in mercy. In that Holy of Holies, With the Ark of the Covenant, there was no chair. Why was that? It was because the high priest would have to enter the Holy of Holies year after year, first offering sacrifices for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. And there was no chair because it was not effective. That priest was a sinner himself. That priest would die. But Jesus entered that heavenly Holy of Holies and he sat down, meaning that it was finished. All was accomplished. Nothing more needed to be done. The hope of history had come to fulfillment. The writer explains it this way, Hebrews 7. Notice the word better here. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, here's what it means for you and for all who trust in Christ. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what that says is this, you know, as we are to run this race, riveting our eyes on Jesus. This Jesus who is the fulfillment of the promises of God. This Jesus who is our example of a godly man, of a holy life. But this Jesus is not only our example. He is our expiation. I had to get that word in there because it flows to an example, expiation. All that means is this. Is Jesus is not only our example. He is the one who atoned for the guilt of our sin. He is the one who disarmed our sin from his explosive power to destroy us. So that our obedience, we look at Jesus, uh, uh, we look at we are to obey as we run the race, but our salvation is not bound up in our obedience, but in Christ's obedience. That, see, the writer Hebrews is trying to pull together those couple things. All right, I'm going to pull all this together with a diagram. Um, I should have asked Justin Land or Ram Goli to draw this up. I didn't. So I want you to use your sanctified imaginations. And there are three dimensions. Think three dimensionally here. I want you to picture a horizontal line. Horizontal. And that horizontal line is a track, it's a race course. It's something that you are to run with endurance, as the race marked out for you. You are to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while you wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are to toss aside every encumbrance, whether it's desire for entertainment or whatever it is that weighs you down as a grip on your soul, whether it's money, whatever it is. And you are to toss aside the sin that can take your eyes off of Christ that is a lure to you, to veer to the left or to the right. And you're to river your eyes on Jesus as your example, becoming more and more like him as Christ is formed in you. All right, that's the vertical line. As you're running that race, you're saying, Lord, I can't do this. I'm constantly falling, constantly stumbling, constantly becoming distracted, constantly veering off, turning my back on you. Lord, I can't do this. And then he points out there is this vertical axis where Jesus Christ sat down in victory for you and so, as you run, your eyes are not only in Christ as your example, your eyes are on Christ as your Savior. Saying, Lord, you are the one in whom I, order. you are my victor. In you, I can live. So, we don't run for victory, we run in victory. But the one, and so there's the vertical, there's the horizontal, there's the vertical. But there's also, you turn it sideways, and you see this three-dimensional view. And you turn sideways and see the depth of history. It says that, yes, I can have confidence, because this is of God. There is one plan of salvation, one way, one covenant. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, right uh, at the very end of his letter, he says... I've talked about the Old Covenant. I've talked about the New Covenant. But there is an everlasting covenant that is all bound up in the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's how we live by faith. And as we enter 2019, may God, God grant us grace to run the race, beholding his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.